This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. So let's have a, a difficult and awkward conversation about a book that's urging us to all have difficult and awkward conversations about what the author calls the D word. Talking about death. It's a subject we like to avoid. It's uh, obviously something that makes us uncomfortable. It's not something we like to think a lot about. But our next guest is making the case that, you know what? It is something we need to think about, and it is something we should talk about and should be able to talk about. So joining us to explain more about how we get to that point and why we need to get there, very pleased to welcome the program, Dr. Kathy Cortez-Miller is an associate professor at Lakehead University in Ontario, and the book is called Talking About Death Won't Kill You, the essential guide to end-of-life conversations. Kathy, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So first of all, why, why is this book needed, do you think? Well, I think Canadians are paying attention to dying and death more than ever, but we are still avoiding the conversations that will help us to think about death in a really proactive way and to make some plans and to figure out what's going to be important to us at the end of life. Why do you think it is that it's so uncomfortable for us to talk about? Well, I think because we've really distanced ourselves from dying and death. We've handed over our dying to the healthcare professions and the healthcare system, and it doesn't belong there. Dying is not a medical event. It's a social process. And as a result, we need to be paying attention to it more in our communities. Our healthcare providers are really good at pain and symptom management and providing the kind of physical care that we need. But there's more to dying than that. There's... We need to have the opportunity to talk with our families, to be in the places that we want to, and can have continued connections with those that love us at the end of life. I mean, is it partly because it's, it seems so out of our hands? It, it's inevitable. There's nothing we can do about it. And when a loved one dies, it's going to hurt and it's going to be painful. And, you know, all the talking in the world doesn't really take away that fact. No, it doesn't take away that fact. And to quote the esteemed John Cleese, life is a terminal illness which is sexually transmitted. Yeah, that's true. So if we have an understanding about that and we recognize from the moment that we're born, actually, our cells are changing, they're ultimately dying. Dying is an important part of life and living. So our conversations, while they're not going to change some of that pain and that grief that we should be feeling at the end of life, because that's part of loving people and engaging and being in relation with people. But what those conversations can do is that they can be a gift so that we're not burdened with the decision making. We're not burdened with wondering, did we do the right thing? We are instead feeling that we have time to grieve the loss and the impact that that person was to us. Right. And I mean, you mentioned the, the John Cleese quote, and I mean, it kind of gives an indication of where you're coming at uh, on, on this book, because it's such a, a heady topic. And so you, you made the decision to be a little cheeky with it, inject a little bit of humor almost into it. Why, why did you approach it that way? 
because I was hoping it would grab people's interest mm-hmm. and make people think about this and want to talk about it because I think we need to normalize dying as a part of living and we need to really get those conversations out there. And if being a little cheeky about it is going to help with that, I figured let's give it a shot. You know, and it, it's a conversation that maybe we need to start having um a lot earlier. And I mean, part of what you talk about in the book is how to have that conversation with children. And I mean, it's something children are going to have to go through at some point, maybe a grandparent, or maybe it's even, you know, um, the the death of a pet, for example. So do do we need to have those conversations with kids? And is that kind of where it all begins? I think that would be a great starting off point. And I think it's important to recognize that children aren't born being fearful of death. They learn about that from us as adults. And in fact, they're born curious about dying and death, just like they are are about most of the things that surround them. And so it's not unusual for children to ask questions when they see things out in nature, you know, be it a dead bird or roadkill, or they see death on movies, or they hear about people becoming ill. And so as adults, we need to be prepared for those conversations, and we need to be open to having them. But I guess it's it's kind of in the how, how that conversation unfolds, because as you say, that, that you know, if kids have that, that fearful perception of death or very somber, or, we shape it. Whatever it is, we shape it. So how, how do those conversations, how do they unfold ideally? I think it's key that to recognize that they are conversations so that there's going to be a number of them throughout um, a young person's development. And so I would say it's about taking advantage of when you see things that happen, um, be it on, as I said, on a movie or in the news and ask children if they have questions about that to figure out what it is that they're thinking about and what is it that they want to know. I'd also encourage conversations to happen um, in ways of teaching children how to be able to offer support if someone is grieving or if someone is very ill or if someone's experienced the death of someone close to them. And so we can model those behaviors and we can also have the conversations about what they can do. And so they can develop their own resiliency through helping others as well. You know, Canada, Canada's gone through this this um, this evolution, I suppose, in, in approaching the, the concept of dying and now embracing the idea of, of medical assistance in dying. It's, it's at least kind of forced us into that conversation, hasn't it, where people wanting to, to go out on their own terms and having a conversation about the kinds of circumstances under which they would wish to end their life or the kinds of circumstances under which they would not want to continue suffering. It's, it's been a difficult adjustment, but has that been uh, an important shift, do you think? I think it's been an important shift about on the way Canadians die. I think it's important to recognize that that is a medical intervention at the end of life and Mm -hmm. it's exciting that that's becoming an option for Canadians. But I think that makes it even more important now that we have those conversations so that we prepare ourselves in terms of what we think will be our options and making sure that those who love us are also on board with our decisions. So that means being being open, obviously, in, in in sharing how people feel about it, but it means, you know, sitting down with a loved one and talking about that, that thing that you, you dread talking about that you don't want to acknowledge is going to happen at some point. It sort of gets back to that, that position we're stuck in, doesn't it? 
It does. But I think if we recognize that at the end of life, one of the biggest fears people have is being a burden on those who love them. So if we frame the conversations as being an opportunity or an, a gift for us and for those that we love because we've dealt with this before we're in crisis, before we're in vulnerable situations, and where our conversations have happened or at the very least have begun, that gift is something that we can carry on with us and it makes the effort and the time and the energy worthwhile. I mean, is this is this reluctance? Is it unique to Canada? Is it is it unique to Western society? Are are there societies where they they seem a lot more comfortable with this? Well, I, I think it's it's a bit of a, a Western piece. There are some uh, cultures that embrace things differently and see very much as dying as a part of life and and living, and they will do things in terms of taking care of their family members a bit more readily. I've had the opportunity of working with some of our First Nations communities here in northwestern Ontario, and while the First Nation communities that I've had uh, contact with don't like to use the D words, dying, death, or dead. They have a very robust community support to taking care of their elders and taking care of people who are very, very sick in a way that I think we're missing in some of our more urban centers. Well, it's interesting, and you talk about language too in the book, that we like to use all kinds of different euphemisms for death, don't mm-hmm. we? And is, yes, that, is, that, is that not helpful? Uh, in my work, it hasn't been. As I outline in, in the book, I talk a, uh, tell a story about a young boy by the name of Sam whose family wanted to protect him while his mother was dying, and they chose to use the word passed away, which is a real common one for many of us oh, yeah, when yeah. we're talking about dying and death. And poor Sam was going from kindergarten to grade one, and conversation termed to passing, and the only person he knew who had passed was his mother. And as a result, he got really scared, and he started acting out and having all sorts of behaviors that weren't normal for him. So I think we have to be really careful about the language that we use to make sure that we're really clear about what it is that's going on. Well, I mean, it gets into a touchy area, doesn't it? Because I think when people talk about they've they've passed on or they've gone on to a better place, there's there's some religious component to that. I I think there can be as well, and I think the spiritual components of dying and death are really important, and I think by still using the words dying, death, and dead, we can acknowledge the physiological response to what has happened to our bodies, but we can still make space for our spiritual beliefs. Well, it's certainly, as we say, an important book, conversations we need to have. Uh, The book is called Talking About Death Won't Kill You, The Essential Guide to End-of-Life Conversations, out this week from ECW Press. Kathy, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Well, thank you very much for having me. Here you go. Kathy Cortez-Miller from uh, Lakehead University. Uh, Her book, Talking About Death Won't Kill You. 974-8255 is our number. Coming up after 1.30, we're going to check in with reporter Aurelio Perry, who's been covering for the, uh, well, the last couple of days, I guess, yesterday and today, the issue of secondary suite reform. So it appears as though City Council has now finally changed the process. Finally, now we've taken the issue of secondary suites out of the hands of City Council. So the question becomes, well, how is this all going to work exactly? So a short time ago here, city officials uh, held a news conference to uh, explain now the steps that are going to be taken going forward, how this process is going to change. So we'll get an update from Aurelio Perry coming up uh, just after 2 o'clock. How about this story out of Vancouver? We talk about uh, conversations maybe you need to have with, uh, with young people. As the story here from Global News says, it's a scenario that wouldn't be out of place in any Hollywood coming-of-age film. 
The teen's well-intentioned party quickly spirals out of control, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. But it's no joke for one teen and her family who are now on the hook for an estimated $20,000 in damages from a very real rager. Now, I can remember back in high school, you'd, you'd hear about these kinds of parties. I was never at one like that where things just got out of hand. And maybe more people showed up than the young person had bargained for. The house gets trashed. You know, it's an awful situation. You got to be able to trust your kids at some point to leave them home alone. But it's also not just about trusting them or even trusting their immediate circle of friends, but it's also helping them understand that you got to be really careful about who you're telling. That, hey, my parents are going to be out of town. I'm allowed to have a couple friends over. Why don't you come over, watch some movies or whatever? Now, if word starts to get around, things can get out of hand. But what happened here, though, is that the teen had stolen her parents' credit card so that she could rent a home online to have a house party. West Vancouver police say this happened last Friday. They were called to a home at around 8.30 p.m., so relatively early in the evening. But they arrived to find about 200 young people in their early to mid-teens flooding out of a house. Police said the organizer, a 14-year-old girl, had booked the house using an online rental service and her parents' credit card. The parents were unaware. Police said the party quickly grew beyond the girl's control as attendees proceeded to trash the place. They didn't identify which rental service was used to make the booking. The homeowner attended the aftermath, took stock, pegged the damage at uh, somewhere around $20,000. The girl's family has pledged to pay for the repairs. So some lessons to be learned from that, but it's a different kind of world now. It's one thing that, you know, are you going to be out of town? What's going on in your own home with your kids? And it's pretty easy these days uh, to find an apartment, to find a house, to find something to rent. And if it's that easy where a teenager can get mom or dad's credit card, book a house, nobody knows anything until after the fact, something to be aware of. So... Yeah, an expensive lesson uh, for this young person uh, out in Vancouver. 974-8255. When we come back, as mentioned, we'll talk secondary suites. A lot more still to come today. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.